Thank you for downloading the Christ Central Church sermon for August 11th, 2013. We did have some slight technical difficulties on this day that caused us to miss a couple of minutes in the middle of the sermon. When you hear the audio seem to jump, don't worry, it's not a problem on your end. It's just where our recorder went down and we had to get it back up quickly. But there's plenty of sermon here for you to benefit from. So now, on to the sermon. Reading your bulletins or along in your Bibles, our passage reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Starting at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorant in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received this mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for God's people. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Matt Moynihan. I'm an intern here at Christ Central. Our text this morning comes from 1 Timothy, obviously. It's a, it is a text uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome, obviously to, to Timothy, who was his, his disciple, his child in the faith, who was in Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey. He was an evangelist there dealing with a lot of issues. And he wrote this from prison to Timothy. Uh, before I preach, please pray with me. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, it overflowed for me with a faith and a love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our text comes from about A.D. 62. I want to start with a story about 30 years earlier. It's a man named Stephen who who stood in a crowd, a crowd of really angry men. And he stood there and he proclaimed this message. We should be thankful for the gospel, and the gospel is for sinners. And in this message, he began to walk through the history of Israel, pointing out, Time and again, how God had been gracious to his people, and his people had 
returned in unbelief and responded in anger. And he concluded, as the people were, were sitting there listening to him, and he looked up into heavens and he said, Behold, Jesus, the heavens are opened, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was a, was a great man. He was a wonderful man. Really, in a lot of ways, he's the kind of man we'd like to have in our community today. He was a deacon. He was one of the first, uh, first of the seven who were appointed to, uh, to give the alms and give the, the provisions and the care for the widows and the orphans. He was a man who loved the lost and the poor and the needy. He cared for them gently, with comfort. He was a man who was bold. He stood there in the presence of a mob. They were a mob. They were angry. They had sticks and rocks. He stood there and proclaimed the gospel truthfully. He was bold. He was courageous. He was honest. This is the kind of man we'd like to have here. This is the kind of man we'd like to be. I look at Stephen and I think, man, I would like to be like Stephen. This crowd heard him. They listened to what he was saying. And at the exhortation of one man, they picked up rocks, big, heavy rocks, and they threw them at him until he died. They stoned him to death. And the man who did this was a man named Saul. And Saul, after he had exhorted these, these unruly men to murder this man, after, after Saul, as an insolent opponent, pushed Stephen to his death, he went out into the community and he said, I am not done yet. And he began to go into church, church after church after church, and he would drag people out of the church. He would take them with him. He would take them to court. Some of them were, would be put to death. Some of them would be imprisoned. Some of them would be separated from their families. If Saul were alive today, he would come in here. He would tear open the doors. He would rush in. He would say, blasphemy. Jesus is not the Lord. And he would cuff us, and he would take us away, and he would stone us. He would watch us bleed. This was not a good man. But this was a man who was good at being bad. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He persecuted the church. He was an insolent opponent. We look at Saul and we would say, why would God, why would God let this happen? Why would God do this? When we look at Paul, and we look at the, Saul, and we look at the world around us, and we say there are people who are the enemies of God. They can, be not, they, can, they can be characterized in no other way aside from they are our mortal foes. This man wants to kill me because I believe in Jesus. If there's someone who deserves the justice of God, if there's someone who should be restrained, if there's someone upon whom or to whom God says, vengeance is mine and I will avenge, if there's someone who that applies to, it is Saul. It is this persecutor, this blasphemer, this insolent opponent. We read this, we hear this, and we ask the question, what happened? What, what happened? Like, how did this man, how did this man who killed Stephen, how did this man who killed this wonderful example of godliness, write this. How did that happen? I want us to see today that we should be thankful that the gospel is for sinners. We should be thankful that the gospel is for sinners and the gospel is gracious. The gospel is transforming and the gospel is patient. 
We should be thankful that the gospel is for sinners and the gospel is gracious. We might ask the question, what is grace? You know, Allie, Allie, my wife, we got married, Allie and I, she's my wife. (laughs) Allie and I were discussing this as I began researching, and I was kind of talking through the text and telling her what I thought, and uh, she asked this question, she said, what is grace? That's a great question. What is grace? Think about that for a second. What is grace? And there's a lot of ways we can think about it. There's a lot of ways we, a lot of things we mean when we say grace, grace, not grease. Very different. But there's three things that we can see from this passage that grace is. The first thing we can see from this passage is that grace is personal. As Paul talks about how he received mercy, he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. What we see first is that grace is personal, is deeply rooted in Jesus. It is, the image we have here is, is that the grace is actually coming out of Jesus. It reminds us of that passage in John, in John where Jesus says, and those, those who believe in me, to those or from those who believe in me, waters of living water will flow. It's this image of, there's actually, grace is streaming out of Jesus. A lot of times we think of grace as something, being something mechanical or impersonal. It's something we, we do or get, but it is deeply personal. It comes and is centered in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so when we talk about being gracious or receiving grace from the Lord, we don't mean that, that something abstract happened. What we mean is that Jesus Christ looked, at on, looked on us with mercy. He had compassion on us. He had so much compassion that deep within himself welled up grace and just poured out. These rivers flowed from Jesus. It is personal. We see, secondly, that grace is fruitful. As it flows out, it, uh, Paul says, and is accompanied by the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It's not alone. It's, it's not alone. It comes with gifts. It comes with fruits. Those fruits are faithfulness and faith and loving and kindness. Uh, the reformers would have said, we are, we, are saved, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. And the grace that we receive from our Lord is fruitful, and it works in us to produce fruit. As we get grace, as we, as we engage community with each other, as we take the elements of the communion, as we read scripture and and hear God's word spoken directly to us, as we engage in fellowship with one another, the grace that we are receiving bears fruit. Finally, we see that grace is abundant. Grace is personal. It comes from Jesus himself. It is deeply rooted in him. It wells up from him. It is fruitful. And as as we taste it and experience it, something changes in us. And we become, and we bear the fruit of Christ. And finally, it is abundant, right? Paul says, the grace of our Lord overflowed abundantly for us. And the, the image he's using here is like wanton excess. Like imagine like, uh, imagine the great Gatsby, if you, any of you saw that movie, and the folks who are just like spraying champagne everywhere, right? This is the image of grace we receive. It is abundant. So I think about scripture and think about this kind of image. I think about uh, Mark 14, which is a the passage where this woman comes to Jesus. 
and he's sitting in a house, and she comes to him with, with tears and weeping. She has this, this, this alabaster flask, this stone flask full of ointment. And the text says it, it cost a year's wages, right? She worked for a year to get this. Think about like, things that I would spend, uh, spend a year's worth burning for. And if I had perfume that I, I worked for for a year, which I would never buy, by the way. <laughs> but if I did, you can believe that I would not pour all of it out. I'd wisp it. <laughs> if I anointed Jesus, I might say, Jesus. <laughs> but she doesn't do that. She takes this stone flask, this stone jar, and she breaks it, and she pours it out on Jesus. All of it doesn't even get on Jesus. It pours out all over him. It, it, it falls down his clothing, onto the table, onto the carpet, down into the grout, into the cracks in the tile. It gets everywhere. And you think, like, what is, what is she doing? It's not even all on Jesus. Like, at least you could, like, paint it on. But it flows everywhere. Again, I think of Psalm 23. And the psalmist says, My cup runneth over. As I think about that text, I think about what, Saul, what, what David is saying there, about what, what God is doing in his life. I think, imagine it like a, a beggar, a starving man, being brought into a banquet, into a feast room, and sitting down at a table, and being, being supplied with food and drink, and a cup is there, and the waiter comes up and begins to pour a little bit, and a little more, and a little more, and finally the cup is overflowing. I can imagine the man saying, stop! What are you doing? Don't, don't spill on the table. I will drink it. I will drink all of it. And it's as though God says, don't worry. Don't, there's a storehouse. There's an abundance. This will not run out. If we talk about grace and say that grace is personal, comes from Christ, it is fruitful, bears fruit, it is abundant, what we need to know is that God's grace is so abundant that he will waste it. Some of you have been praying for and loving and caring about people for years and wondering what is happening. And you look at their lives and, and it, it's as though nothing has changed and nothing has happened. And you say, God, what are you doing? God, why are you taking so long? And what this text says to us is this, God will waste his grace on you. God will waste his grace on you. God will waste his grace on you. He will pour it and pour it and pour it until he's done. He will get it onto the carpet, into the cracks in the tile, onto other people. He will keep pouring until his job is complete. We look at Paul and ask a, lie, ask a question, what is, what is happening here? How did Paul get to be this man? How did this happen? Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. What? Like, who? are we talking about the same Paul? How is Paul faithful? The only thing he was faithful at was killing Christians. The only thing he was faithful at was denying the name of Christ. The only thing he was faithful at was putting to death uh, the church of God. Like, how is this man faithful? We can get a sense of what's going on here if we look at, as you, as you look at the, the Greek of the text, um, he says, Paul says, he judged me faithful. Then he says, in regards to the gospel, he says, uh, Christ came into the world to save sinners. He says, this saying is tr- trustworthy. And the words that Paul uses there are actually the same. 
uses the same word for faithfulness. Paul is faithful, and the gospel is faithful. The saying of the gospel is faithful. What we see here is Paul, Christ considers Paul to be gospel-like. Paul is speaking here of a truth called justification. Jesus looks at Paul and says, you are faithful because the gospel is faithful. You are right because the gospel is right. You are loved because the gospel is loved. This is the truth for Paul, and it's the truth for us as well. What, what ultimately defines Paul is not the things Paul has done previously. What defines Paul is that he is defined by the gospel. He is a gospel man because Jesus has called him by the gospel. He says, you are faithful, you are a gospel man. I am putting my faithfulness on you. How is Paul faithful? Because Christ is faithful. Christ was faithful in all things, and he applied that to Paul. Even when Paul was not faithful, Jesus can call him what he is not because of the work he does. The gospel is transforming in the sense it changes the way God views us. God views Paul as faithful, but it also is transforming because it changes who Paul is. It says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But that's not who Paul is anymore. Paul is someone who's totally different. Paul talks to us in, in Philippians 2 about um, his prior life before he was a Christian. And he lists off a, a variety of things that defined him. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin, which is an honorable tribe. He was circumcised on the eighth day. And so the law, he was a Pharisee. He was an honorable man who held to the, God, held to the law. And so the law, he was a zealot. He firmly believed it. He was a strong in the law. All these things define Paul as a man who was, who was worthy and honorable. He was, by the, by the standards of that society, he was a good man. But Acts chapter 9 says, and Paul went about breathing threats and murder to the church. He was this beautiful body that was pouring out death from his mouth. He was deadly to others, and he was deathly inside. When Paul writes uh, Timothy 2, the second letter to, the, to uh, Timothy the Evangelist, he's in prison again. He'd been, probably been released before, several years earlier. He'd gone about, he'd come back to prison, and it was the end of his life. He was going to die. He was about to be martyred. And he says, my closest friends have abandoned me. Right? He says, Luke, the one who wrote, who wrote Acts, is the only one who's left. We look at Paul at the beginning, and we might put Paul like in the, the who's who of Jewish society. We might say, if you're going to look for who's ascending, who's going to be the next star, it's me, Paul, right? He's, he's on the right track. And we look at the end of his life, and we say, like, Paul, what, what happened? How do you end up here? How do you end up isolated and alone in a prison and about to be killed? But we see that at the end of his life, Paul is this wonderful man, right? So on one hand, it says, the text says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that, that are in Christ Jesus. And there's a sense in which that is referring to Paul himself. As, as God has poured grace into him, what has come out of him is faith and love. Paul previously had been this honorable man by the society that was full of death. 
And yet now he becomes this almost deathly ill man that is full of life. This contrast reminds me of uh, Indiana Jones. Right? You, all, you all will probably remember, after he crosses over the bridge, he takes a leap of faith, right? the most common illustration in history. He enters this, this chalice room, right? It's this room filled with goblets. And the storyline is that there's this, there's this uh, bowl of water, and if you drink water from the right goblet, you, you get to live for a long time. But if you drink from the wrong goblet, you die. And so there's, there's Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, and there's this Nazi, this very evil man. And the Nazi walks in this room filled with beautiful goblets, and he looks around and finds the biggest, most beautiful, ruby-encrusted goblet he can find, the kind of thing that's a trophy, right? You don't drink out of it. Like, everyone knows that. And he gets this big goblet and fills it with water, and from this beautiful goblet flows death. And then Indiana Jones finds this tiny little thing, like made out of wood. It's, like, it's covered in mud, kind of. Something you find in the gutter. It's beat up. It's cast out. It's just like no one drinks from it. It's dirty. And, and he, he fills it with water, and he drinks from it. And he drinks from it life. And we see here a picture of the gospel. That a lot of times we, we look at the outer success and we say, that person is right. They're, they're actually on the right track. They're actually going places. But we find flowing from them is death. And we see someone like Paul, who's backwards. And it's like, God wouldn't do this to his people. He wouldn't send them to prison. He wouldn't abuse them. He wouldn't leave them forsaken and abandoned and left alone. But from this man comes rivers of life. A lot of times we ask the question, God, what are you, what are you doing in my life? Why am I not going? Why am I not going anywhere? Why are things not progressing? Why is our church not growing like it ought to grow? Why is my career not progressing like I think it should progress? Why is my family not the right kind of family? And what we find is the standards we have for our lives and for our world are not Jesus' standards. The question we should be asking is, where is the grace? What is God doing? And some of us might find that we're asking the wrong question. And we, we feel discouraged because we're looking at our lives and it seems like God's not working. And yet, like Paul, we find that, Paul, that, that, that God is pouring out of us life in all such a places. Some of you are discouraged and need to realize that you are in exactly the right place. And the things you're suffering are exactly the right things to suffer. And the thing that is most important, that which is inside you coming out, is right. Some of you are on the other side, and your lives are ruby encrusted right now. And it seems like everything is going really well. And you need to ask yourself the question, what kind of water do I have inside myself? What is God doing? And maybe you might find that you, you are not growing like you ought to grow. You might find that, that the fruit of the Spirit that should be growing in you is not there. And you need to ask the question, where am I getting grace from? Lord, work in me. We look at Paul. Paul was previously a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. We see, thanks to God, the gospel is for sinners. The gospel is transforming. We, like Paul, who came to the gospel full of sin, and yet outwardly honorable, we find that God is working in ways that that don't make sense. The gospel transforms us. Finally, we see that the gospel is patient. Think about Stephen. Stephen was this wonderful, loving, godly man. 
And I think, why did God not use Stephen? Why was Stephen not the means by which God would work, work in the gospel throughout the world? I mean, there's a sense of me, which I'd like, I'd like Stephen to like, stand with a sword and be like, aha, and like beat down all the bad guys, right? I want Stephen to take the day. And yet, the guy that we, we, we root for, the guy we long to see succeed, the guy who has all the things right, scripturally speaking, spiritually speaking, he dies. What is God doing? And the man who kills him goes around and, and continues to, to, to succeed. He's not just bad, he's good at being bad. And we ask the question, what is God doing? And what God says is, I am more patient than you are, and my patience is perfect. When Paul says the perfect patience of God in verse 16, he doesn't say perfect patience. What he says is this, all of his patience. All of his patience. God God spent his patience to the very end to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And it seemed like the story is arcing down into a negative end, like this is, this is a tragedy with no good, good conclusion. We find that God will wait longer than we will. We find that God will be patient longer than we will be patient. And we find that all of God's patience will last until the job is done. We are so quick to write people off. Rather, I am so quick to write people off. I'm so quick to look at the world around me and say, like, who, who, what is this person doing? Like, God just needs to take them out of that place. God needs to get rid of this person. God needs to be vengeful to this person. I'm so quick to come to a judgment to, of others and say, God has no place for you. What we find is all of God's patience is sufficient to get the job done. Some of you think that you can never be right with God. Some of you think that God will never wait long enough. Some of you think that God is just fed up with you, that God is thrilled. Some of you think, you know what, I had my chance that last time, and I blew it, and God is done with me. And what Paul says to us is, God will use all of his patience to get you into his kingdom. He will use all of his patience to save you. He will use all of his patience for you. We look to the world around us and we think, things are not going our way. Things are not going the way of Jesus. This is not the world we ought to live in. This church should not be this way. This country should not be this way. This world should not be this way. And we almost want to take up arms, whether that's literally or figuratively, and change it and get it done. We want to fix what's wrong. We want to stop the bad people. And what God says is, my patience is perfect, and I will use all of it. And when I finish waiting, what will come out will not be vengeance as we would prefer, but rather life, like Paul. Paul speaks of himself, and he says, I was these things. I was a, a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy for this reason. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And it almost sounds like Paul is saying that he received mercy because he was ignorant. 
like, it was, a, it was an excuse. Well, I was ignorant, and so God was like, well, it's okay. But that's not what's happened here. He's not, Paul's not describing the cause of mercy. He's describing the setting of mercy. What Paul's saying here is this. Who I was and what I did was so abominable that had I known what I was doing, had I really believed Jesus is a Christ and I am just going to kill his church, there would have been no coming back. There would have been no turning away from that. Paul was ignorant of the truth and enacted in ignorance, even though it was unbelief. What we find is that, in some ways, Paul is less of a sinner than we are. We look at Paul and say, this man, this man when he says blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, he is not exaggerating. In fact, he's understating reality. But he says, these things that were true of me in my ignorance. I did not know the grace of Christ. I did not experience uh, the, the resurrection I received in him. I did not know what was to be part of his fellowship. I did not know that this was true. But some of you do. Some of you know what, what the gospel is, and you believe it, and you keep on sinning, and you keep on going down the same path, and you keep on doing the same things, and what this text needs to say to you is, you should be scared. We should be scared. Paul says, had I, had I not acted in ignorance, it would have been the end of me. You should be frightened of the gospel. While, Paul, while Christ did not have vengeance on Paul, Christ has vengeance. Christ cares about his church. Christ loves his people. If you are living in sin, and you are loving your sin, it needs to frighten you. If you know the truth, if you know what is true about Jesus, that this is his world, that you are his, that he has bought you, that he has shed his own blood for your souls, that he has called you to an eternal life, to his kingdom, to the kingdom of ages, if you know these things and keep on sinning, it should scare you. But if you're that person like me, and I've, I've done that times, if, you, if we are that person who keeps on sinning, then hear this. Hear these words and have the same perspective that Paul, Paul, Paul does. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. If this is you, if you keep on sinning and don't know, and just keep going back to that sin, do not turn away. Do not run away from the grace of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. Jesus came to save sinners just like us. Just like me. Do not turn away. Run back to Jesus. Run back to the one who has that grace that is personal, that flows from him, that's fruitful, that, that produces good fruit, good life, that is abundant, that keeps on flowing. Paul says this, he says, I'll receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as a foremost, 
Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And we might be quick to say, I need to follow the example of Jesus. So the end of the story here is, I should be like Jesus. I should do what Jesus does. I need to love people. I need to be patient. I need to be gracious. I need to be slow to anger. I need, I need to give people, you know, space they need. I need to keep on loving people after they've wronged me. All those things are good things. But if that's the message you take away, that's the message we take away. We've taken away the wrong message. Paul says, Jesus Christ used me as an example to those who were to believe in him. The example here is not be like Jesus. The example here is believe that Jesus is like Jesus. Believe that Jesus is like Jesus. Or rather, believe that Jesus now will act like Jesus acted before. Believe that Jesus will be to you what he was to Paul. Believe that Jesus will give you the grace and mercy and kindness that he gave to Paul. If Paul, if Jesus was gracious to Paul, if Jesus was gracious in the midst of that sin, Jesus will be gracious to you. And if that's the case, if the grace of this Jesus is that potent, it will result in those things we just talked about. If you believe in this Jesus, if you believe that Jesus will be merciful to you, that his, gracious, that his grace is personal and fruitful and abundant, and it keeps on flowing, then what you'll see as you be, believe, as you take up that grace, is that he'll begin to change you. And the souls of this world begin to, to be transformed into the Pauls. That those who are blasphemers become those who, were, who are blessers. And those who are persecutors become those who have patience. And those who are insolent and disobedient and opponents will become the lovers of Jesus. Paul ends with benediction. Paul usually ends with benediction. When he's talking about something that's heavy, when he talks about what God is doing, he doesn't just stop. He doesn't just say, the end. But he goes on and he says, the reason for this is that the king of ages, who is immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The end of the story is that Christ is most important. And that Christ's honor and Christ's glory is most significant. We go back to Stephen in uh, in Acts chapter 7, and we ask the question, what is God doing? Why would God allow this terrible thing to happen to this good man? And we see that God is committed more to God's glory than he is to our personal happiness. And so it was that as Stephen stood there and talked to the, these men, he looks up and he sees heavens opened, and he says, Jesus is standing in the right hand of God. And we all know that forever from now on, Jesus will stand at the right hand of God, right? No. Revelation says Jesus will sit at the right hand of God. 
So what is Stephen seeing? Was he seeing him in the act of sitting? Was he was it a very slow sit? Jesus was standing up for Stephen. Jesus stood up and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We are called to glorify and honor God. And that means that a lot of times our lives will not be good. A lot of times we will be called to suffer. A lot of times we'll be called to do things and be places and be people that we don't necessarily want to be. And what we're called to remember ultimately is we we do that because it brings honor and glory to Christ, who even though he is seated, will stand up for his children, will stand up and say, you are my son. I'm well pleased in you. A little, in a little bit, we'll come down for communion. We'll eat bread. We'll drink wine or grape juice that expresses to us and applies to us grace. We do this every week so we remember it. We do it every week so we receive it. As we do this, as you walk down, think about this. God's grace is not limited to a tiny little cup. God's grace is not limited to a tiny little scrap of bread. God's grace is abundant. It overflows for you. We should be thankful the gospel is for sinners. We should be thankful the gospel is for us. We should be thankful the gospel is for people who should never be in a church or ever, ever be in God's body or ever receive anything good. The gospel is for sinners. We should be thankful that the gospel is gracious. It is full of grace. The gospel is transforming. It transforms us. It makes, the, makes us who are unfaithful to be faithful sons and daughters. We should be thankful that the gospel is patient. It's slow to anger. It's patient with us. I need that patience. Think about these things as you take Christ's body and bread today. We should thank gospel. We should thank God that the gospel is for sinners.